Okay, so here's where we're at in our Romans in Reverse series. Paul's reminded the Christians in Rome, some with a Jewish background and some who are Gentiles, about the good news of forgiveness of sin and salvation that's found in Christ Jesus. And now he anticipates a couple of concerns that they have. One, what's going to stop people from sinning if you're telling them that there's unlimited forgiveness for those who are in Christ? And two, does this new covenant with God through Jesus Christ completely invalidate the law and everything else in the Jewish tradition that came before? Well, Romans chapter 6 and 7 address these concerns. So today, we're going to look at both of these questions, and we're going to hear Paul's responses to them, and then we're going to see that if Christians are properly living out their baptism in Christ, then these things shouldn't really be a concern at all. Let's start with the second one first, the question of what about the law of Moses? This concern for us might not be our concern. It may not be easy for us to relate to because most of us are not ethnically Jewish. We didn't grow up with the Jewish traditions. But remember, one of the main sources of conflict in the churches in Rome was this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. The Jews, remember, were expelled from Rome in 49 AD, and so the churches in Rome all formed with mostly Gentiles. But now, the Jews were back, and though they believed in Jesus, they still wanted to know, does this gospel message affect our Jewish traditions and our history? And if so, how does it do that? Well, what Paul explains in chapter 7 is that the law was useful for a time, but it was ultimately not sufficient to keep us from being slaves to sin and death. And he uses an illustration from marriage, saying, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So for the Jewish Christians who are saying, well, what we need is more Torah. We need to get back to that program. Paul is responding to them by saying, no, that's not what we need. That's not going to cut it. What we need is more of God's spirit. You see, the law only gets us so far, but Christ and the spirit are now the fuel that drive faithfulness. I heard somebody say one time that for Paul, the law is kind of like a rocket booster, the thing that gets the space shuttle into outer space. Now, it couldn't have gotten there without the rocket booster, so it was useful for a time, but now the deep space mission is the focus. Does that mean that the rocket booster was bad? No, not at all. It was useful. It was necessary even, but the mission continues on. Well, the law is the same. It was valuable. It was useful. It was good. And it showed us the pickle that we were in regarding sin. It got us this far, but ultimately it didn't do anything to help us out of that pickle because of sin and death that were at work in us. We're flawed people trying to keep the law and that doesn't go so well. And that's why Paul says later on in Romans 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? 
Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And he goes on to say, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Paul is not even interested in getting rid of the law. He still holds the law in high esteem. That's why he'll go on to say in Romans 13, if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. The law is good, but the thing that we should be leaning into now is salvation in Christ and the spirit that God poured out in his church that allows us to do what we could not do on our own. Jesus, the Messiah, is the continuation of Israel's story. So for those traditions and festivals and rituals that the Jewish Christians insisted were necessary, Paul says they're good, and even today, it's, it's a good thing if you don't murder someone, if you honor your parents, if you don't steal or covet or lie. If you observe the Sabbath, you'll be blessed by it. But don't confuse them for the true necessity, and that's receiving God's spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second concern. What's going to stop people from sinning once they get this get-out-of-jail-free card in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul said at the end of chapter 5, that as sin increased in the world, grace increased through Christ. So one might wonder, well, if grace increases when sin increases, should we sin more so that we can get more of that good grace from God? Isn't it kind of like Pac-Man? You know that game, Pac-Man, where you go around and you try to chomp all the dots, but they're these ghosts and they're bad, right? They're trying to get you. But when you eat the power pellet, the tables get turned. The ghosts all turn blue. And now if you eat the ghosts, you actually get bonus points. So the bad thing becomes the good thing. Ergo, sin is good now because it just means more grace, right? And Paul says, no, you guys, it's not like Pac-Man. And here's why. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. For we are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. 
Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Here's why it's not like Pac-Man. Sin isn't a good thing now just because it produces more grace. That's not the change. The change is that sin is no longer our master because we are linked to Christ in baptism. We are free from sin's tyranny, its influence, and its demands on our lives. Here, Paul helps give us an understanding of what Christian baptism is all about. There's a few different layers here. First of all, it's something that's related to the Exodus story. Remember, the Israelites were enslaved by cruel masters in Egypt, but then God rescues them. He calls them out and he leads them through the waters of the Red Sea and he crushes their enemies. And then he meets them in safety on the other side. This is the story of baptism. Again, it's a continuation of the story of Israel. Second, going into and then out of the water, being immersed in Christ, is a participation in his death and his resurrection. Just as Christ died and went down into the grave and then was raised up to new life, that's what will happen with us as well, because we are in Christ. We've confessed our belief that he is the Son of God, that he is Lord, and we don't want to serve the other cruel master of sin anymore. We want to serve Jesus only. Your baptism is a declaration of allegiance to King Jesus. You know, in the early days of Christianity, like in the first and second centuries after Jesus' resurrection. When Christians were baptized, it was customary for them, while they were standing there in the water, to turn toward the west and to spit. Kind of weird, but that's what they would do. They would spit as a way of denouncing Satan and all the pagan gods. And then they would turn and they would face the east. That's where they believed that Jesus would return from. And then they would declare their allegiance to King Jesus. And then they would go into the waters and be baptized. Well, chapter six is a call for Christians to take their baptism seriously. If you've been rescued by God, if you've been buried with Christ so that you can be raised with him, and if you've pledged your allegiance to King Jesus, why would you ever want to go back to being a slave to sin? That doesn't make any sense. N.T. Wright gives an illustration about this that I think is really useful. He says this, imagine that I'm a tenant farmer living out in the countryside about a thousand years ago. My little farm sits on the border between two great estates. And for years, the Lord of the manor in whose land I actually live has had me completely under his thumb. In particular, whenever he's wanted to fight a war or even a local skirmish, he's called on me to join up and fight on his side. And he's threatened me with all sorts of unpleasant things like burning down my house if I don't come along. What's more, He has more than once made me get all of my farm implements, nice peaceful things like hoes and spades, and take them down to the blacksmith to make them into swords and shields. So off we go to fight his wars when really I ought to be looking after the farm. Well, eventually I saw the light and I moved just across the river into the other great estate. We built a new house, we brought all our stuff across, and we settled down. Fortunately, my old landlord was away at the time or he probably would have tried to stop me. The noble lord who owns the land where I now live gave us a wonderful welcome and charges us a lot less rent than the other one. From time to time, my old boss has come down and threatened to send his henchmen across and do all sorts of unpleasant things to me Uh, once more. I think he's secretly afraid of my new landlord. I get on with my work and I look after my farm and my new master gets me to help him with his work, which is quite different from the battles my old boss used to drag me into. 
My new master is building schools and hospitals, especially for the really poor people. And sometimes he asks me to bring my tools to help in the work. And if someone's in special need, maybe a, there's a death in the family or a fire, they have sick animals or whatever, he asks me to help out in this way or that. And sometimes, of course, it's an effort, but I'm glad to do it, especially for him. This is the message of Romans 6. You have been released from this unholy, unhealthy relationship with sin, and you don't have to go back. That's done. Paul says it like this, thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin and you have become slaves to righteous living. Our relationship with sin is over. We are happier now. We're healthier and we're more hopeful now. We don't owe sin a thing. We've broken those ties. We've hung up the phone. We've changed our number. It's done. But like the cruel landlord in the story, sin still comes around and it tries to boss us around, tries to get us involved with its dirty work. And this is the part of the story that we can relate to, I think. As Christians, we've declared our permanent residency in the kingdom of Christ, but we still know how to speak the old language. We still have the capacity for being mean, being ugly, unforgiving, impatient, self-indulgent, destructive. Sometimes we slip up and we fall back into these old habits. And sometimes it's an accident, it's a slip, and we go, oh, I messed up, I, I don't, shouldn't do that anymore, I'll try, try to get back on track. But other times, it's a matter of trying to have one foot in both worlds, trying to serve two masters, trying to serve Christ and sin at the same time. You'll find that there are Christians who go to church every Sunday but have never shed their racism. You'll find that there are Christians who love to quote the Bible on social media, but at the same time, they're deeply involved with pornography. You'll find that there's gossip in churches that's disguised as prayer requests. Some Christians are faithful to following Christ up to a certain point, but when the teachings of Jesus clash with the cultural norms, the other one goes out the window. And this is a big part of what Paul needed to correct in the churches in Rome. He wanted to correct an attitude that says, I can be both. I can be in Christ and hating my brother at the same time. I can be the church and be a divided church at the same time. And Paul says, you're wrong. You can't. You can't do both. You can't serve two masters. You have to pick a side. Martin Luther said, that whenever he was feeling tempted to revert back to sinful behaviors or attitudes, he would stop himself and out loud, he would shout the phrase, baptizatus sum, which is Latin for, I have been baptized. It was kind of like a Reformation version of, not today, Satan. Kind of fun. It was a, it was a way of reminding himself of who he was in Christ, of his identity as a new creation, having been declared himself as a follower of Jesus, someone who had spit in the face of sin and denounced the false gods and was forever connected to Jesus through his baptism. Baptizatus sum. It's kind of fun to say. Go ahead and try it. Repeat it after me. Baptizatus sum. Yeah, and if you wave your wand and say it, you might make your couch levitate just a little bit. It kind of sounds like a, like a Harry Potter spell or something. Uh, Baptizatus sum. That's what Martin Luther would say. You can try that. 
Maybe when you're feeling tempted in your life and your walk with Christ, you can just, you know, in the middle of uh, an office meeting or a Zoom meeting or something, you can just be like, mm, baptize to Zoom, and see how well that goes over. You might do that. There's other ways to express this, though. There's other ways to remind yourself that you are a follower of Christ, that you have declared your allegiance to him and only him. The folks in the Thursday night spiritual workshop class, they have a song that they sing pretty regularly, and it kind of does the same thing. It reminds us who we are as Christians. I'm going to sing it for you now. And if you know it, feel free to sing along. If you don't know it, feel free to learn it. And maybe this can become your declaration of faith. This can become the reminder of who you are in Christ. It goes like this. I am covered over with the robe of righteousness my Father gives to me, gives to me. I am covered over with the precious blood of Jesus and he lives in me, lives in me. Oh, what joy it is to know my heavenly Father loves me so he gives to me, my Jesus. When he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus, Jesus. Thanks, Thursday night, for teaching me that song. It's a good tune. Maybe this will become your new baptizatus sum. Whatever words you use to make this declaration of faith, your actions need to back them up. I think we all need to take a lesson from Andrew Spinka and N.T. Wright and remind ourselves of how much better it is to serve the Lord rather than to serve sin and death. We declare our allegiance to Jesus and only Jesus when we're baptized, but then we have to go on and live every day into that declaration. I wanna invite you this morning. If you haven't been baptized, you should do so. It's, it's a good thing. If you believe that Jesus is the son of God, if you believe that he was crucified, if you believe the reports that the tomb was empty and that he was raised from the dead by the power of God, and if you want to make him the Lord of your life, if you want to serve him and not the other guy, now is a great time. Send me a text, give me a call. We can talk more about this or we can just make it happen today. You can come here to the church building. We'll baptize you right now or we'll head over to Rod's pool. Some way we'll figure out how to make this happen. Quarantine's not going to slow us down from people making this declaration of faith, making this lifelong commitment to following Jesus. It's such an important thing in the life of a Christian. And it's something that's worth celebrating. Jesus himself tells us that heaven, all of heaven, rejoices and celebrates when someone turns away from sin and says yes to following Jesus. And for those of you this morning who have been baptized, this is a reminder for us. Stop working for the other guy. Jesus tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's a lot of good work you can be doing in the kingdom of God. So stop going back. Stop getting pulled in and sucked in to those fights, to those attitudes that you said no to. Stop trying to have one foot in each world. It doesn't work that way. Live into your declaration of faith. Declare with your life. Baptizatus sum. I am a follower of Jesus. Let's get back to work today. Let me pray for us as we close out. God, we thank you so much for this message. I thank you for Paul's words, words that he wrote so many years ago, but that we're still reviewing today, that we're still finding life and truth in. 
I thank you for these chapters and I pray that you will give us your wisdom in helping us understand them. Not just understand what Paul was saying to the churches in Rome, but understand what they mean in our lives what they mean for us for the rest of today, for the rest of this week, how we can live it out in our families, in our relationships, in the work that we do, in the times of rest, in our relationship with you. Help us to seek you with everything that we have. Thank you for the sacrament of baptism, this strange mystery that as we go into the water, something heavenly happens that we don't quite fully grasp, but it puts us in the Jesus camp. It, it puts us on the right side of things, and it gives us hope, and it gives us salvation. So we thank you for your spirit, the way that you're working in your church, the way that you're working in the lives of individuals. And I pray that more and more people can hear this message. I pray that all of us can be ambassadors for Christ of this message of good news, this message of hope and salvation in Christ. And just as the Israelites were brought through the waters and brought to safety and brought into your presence so they could be with you and worship you, I pray that more and more people will find that in Christ as we share this good news with our friends and our neighbors. Give us your strength, give us your courage, give us the words to say and the ears to hear. We love you, Lord, and we pray this prayer in Christ's name. Amen.